Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Tony Goldwyn. From ghost to directing to scandal to Broadway. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yes, a first-time guest on Happy, Sad, Confused. Always a fan of Tony Goldwyn. I've seen him in so many different kinds of uh, performances. As I said, he is currently... His current iteration, his current life is on Broadway, and I've seen him in two great pieces of work in recent years. He was on, he was in Network last year, um, and now he is currently appearing in The Inheritance, which is a fantastic piece of work. This came over from London with stellar reviews. I saw it and was blown away by it. It's essentially a reworking of E.M. Forster's Howard's End, but through the prism of the AIDS crisis in New York in the 80s. It is, uh, it's a special piece of work. And sadly, it's closing actually pretty soon. March 15th is your last opportunity to see The Inheritance on Broadway. Tickets are available. I would highly encourage you, if you're in the New York area, if you're able to get here, see it, because it's one of the better pieces of theater I've seen in quite some time. And Tony is fantastic in it. Um, yeah, a really special piece of work. Anyway, there, we cover a lot in this. Tony is is a, a really, I, uh, you know, he, he's got a great perspective on a fantastic up and down career. I always love these conversations that talk about the ups and downs uh, in an actor or filmmaker's life, and he certainly experienced all of them. Um, you know, I think we all probably came to know him first with his performance in Ghosts, and then he takes a an interesting turn because the, the, the really the roles or the, the right roles in the right films didn't come after Ghosts, so he took kind of like a left turn and became a, a really successful director had a great feature film directing career, and then in recent years uh, had this kind of new wave of acting opportunities thanks to a little show called Scandal. And through it all, theater has always been there. And as you'll hear in this conversation, theater's been really the constant in his life. We talk about all of that, his impressive uh, family history. That Goldwyn name may sound familiar to anybody that's a student of film history. Yes, his dad and his grandparents were all in the business and really form uh, a key part of the foundations of, uh, of the film business, as it were. So uh, a real pleasure to have Tony in, uh, in my office to chat about the inheritance and a, uh, and a really stellar career. Anyway, uh, a lot going on as always. Uh, I want to mention a couple of things. I've been traveling a lot. I, I did the math. I think I, I was on five planes in seven days, and that is just too many. <laughs> That's too many planes. Um, but it's uh, that, there was some family stuff, but also a lot of work stuff, um, including a really fun shoot that you should be seeing very soon. Uh, the byproduct of I caught up with Chris Pratt, who... Um, you know, he's the best. I mean, I've, I've talked about Chris on this podcast before. Um, we've done so many interviews and conversations in different, in different formats over the years. And, and I mean it when I say it. He's really been like one of the most consistently supportive and good-natured uh, guys that I've gotten to know in the business. And for somebody that's as huge a star as he is, he is really in the, uh, in the stratosphere for me just as a human being. So anyway, all of which is to say we shot a new, uh, really fun bit for comedy central that, uh, he was, you know, he was, he was so game. He was so game as he always is. And he, he, he killed it. And we're about to debut that that's in conjunction with onward his new film with Tom Holland that opens, I believe it opens March 6th. So check out that that's the new uh, Pixar film with those guys and Julia Louis Dreyfus is a part of it. So, you know, it's going to be good. Uh, anyway, that's something to look forward to, uh, other things. Oh, I've been, you know, I've been catching up on TV like everybody else. I've been watching our old buddy, Logan Lerman's show. Show, uh, Hunters, uh, which is really unique and fascinating. I feel like it was kind of made for me. <laughs> it's, um, you know, about Nazi hunters in the late 70s. Al Pacino's in it. It's a great ensemble. Uh, really impressive. Um, I was going to say filmmaking. I mean, it has that kind of that sheen of filmmaking to it. And it's great to see Logan uh, in a really um, interesting project. And, and great to see Logan opposite, like a legend like Al Pacino and more than holding his own. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff. Um, all of which is to say there's too much damn content out there. And we're only in February. We're in February when... The good stuff isn't supposed to be out there now. The good stuff comes later. But even uh, I find myself way behind on everything. I've got that running list of TV like everybody else. So I'll be catching up with it all 
in these leaner months uh, for the film world, and then comes summer when the blockbusters come. I, I, I'm, you know, I'll be as far behind as everybody else. Anyway, we're not talking movies or TV today. I mean, we are a little bit, but we're talking theater, theater uh, with Tony Goldwyn. Again, he's currently starring in The Inheritance on Broadway. It closes on March 15th, so you have a little bit of time. I really highly encourage you, if you're able to, get out to see it. It's a two-part play. It's a monumental piece of work, and I'm really glad I got a chance to see it, and I'm glad that it gave us the opportunity to uh, bring Tony into my office. Here's my chat with Tony Goldwyn. Tony Goldman has invaded my office on a rainy New York day. It's good to see you, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, always big, big fan of your work. And uh, I was just saying, I, you've been killing it on stage recently. Uh, I've gotten a, the pleasure of seeing you both in Network, which we can talk about a little later, which a very unique production. And also unique production, the reason you're here today is The Inheritance, which right. is so special, man. You must be, this must feel, even among the, the many highlights in your career, like a a distinct opportunity. It does. Really, this one is really special. I, I feel, uh, every time we do it, I feel so lucky to be a part of it. It's, yeah. it's an incredible piece of theater. So talk to me a little bit about, okay, let, let, let's set it, we'll set it up for the audience a little bit. Um, I didn't know much going in. I'd heard like kind of the, I'd heard the buzz because it was in London, mm -hmm, right? right? And like, it and won all the playwriting awards. Insane and, yeah. mm -hmm. acclaim over there. Yeah. Uh, it's also like kind of like, I feel like it's like a new trend of these like two part plays that are these like epic stories that um, generally, thankfully, warrant them. And this one certainly does. Uh, inspired loosely by Howard's End, mm -hmm. which had been a while, frankly, since I'd, I'd seen the classic film. Right. Um, but it really it, it puts it in a much different context. What was your uh, knowledge of this when this opportunity came? Well, around? the way I heard about the play, my older brother, uh, who I'm very close to, is a producer, a, a film and television producer, yeah. and and he called me, God, I think two years ago maybe, and said, "I've just read the most extraordinary play." He said, "I, I have read in, I can't remember how long." He said, "This you have to know this writer Matthew Lopez. He's just amazing. He's written this epic, you know, thing. It's going to be produced at the Young Vic in London." And he said, I'm flying over to see it because I just, I, I, he said, this is, so I, I was on my radar and then he called me after he'd seen the London production saying, you must, if you can come to London, you've got to see this play. And I couldn't get to London in time to see it because <clears throat> I was busy here. And um, then he called me during the summer and said, uh, remember that play I told you about? It's, they're going to come to Broadway and I'm, you know, they've asked me if I want to be a producer on it, like an investor. And I don't know if I should do that. And because he hadn't invested in the theater. And I said, look, if you're looking to make a killing, you probably shouldn't. Right. <laughs> but you feel so passionately about this project to support it creatively, I think you absolutely should. So he then was like, yeah, I agree. And, and uh, so he became a producer on it. And maybe a week or so later, uh, I got this, you know, my agents called me and said, they want you to do this play. And, and I said, that's the one John was talking about. So it turns out that a f an old friend of mine, John Benjamin Hickey, originated my role in London right, and was coming to Broadway but was unavailable for a four-month chunk of the run uh, from January through April. Sure. So they said, would you want to do it? And I, so I, I thought, well, this was, I knew how thrilled my brother was with this plan. I, I literally sat down and I read 20 pages of however many hundreds of pages. <laughs> that must be an intimidating moment. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was a physical uh, uh, script that came to you, but like to see just the mound. Yeah, I mean, I, I, sat, I read 20 pages in. I was like, I, ha I have to be a part of this. Yeah. And my character was not even... I was going to say. Yeah, in, you're not... Henry doesn't come into the play until two hours into it. Right. He has quite a buildup. There's a lot of talk about him. Yeah, you, you have the have... ideal. You want the, the character that people talk about a lot, exactly. but you don't actually have to and be on stage finally, for a bit. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and then as I'm reading this, I, I get to the scene when Henry first makes his entrance, which is well into part one, and my phone rings and it's my brother just randomly calling me. And I said, you're not going to believe what I'm reading. He said, what? I said, the inheritance, they've just offered me uh, John Hickey's role because he's leaving, you know, leaving for four months. And, uh, and he, said, I, he said, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say anything. Uh, call me when you're done reading it. And then I, an hour or two later. <laughs> Six hours later, yeah. Part two. I was weeping, and uh, I called him up. I was like, I got to be a part of this. This is really, 
uh, amazing. Does I mean, having sat through the, what is it? It's probably six or six and a half, seven hours, something like that. It's, um, six and a half, yeah. So to, to the credit of the production, and like I, I admittedly have a short attention span, and I was mm-hmm. on a word going in, yeah. it's riveting. I mean, it's emotionally just so engaging and... You don't um, feel that you've been in the theater that long. I, I would not have you in here if I if I got bored an hour right. in. It's 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 a really special piece of material. Well, and there are some other. You know, I've been to a number of two part, multiple part sure. epic things, and there are some where it's worth it, but it's work. You know, yes. you you invest and you're like, okay, we're in this for the long haul, and at the end you're like, wow, that was really yeah. um, thing, but that was work. With the inheritance, you don't feel that way. You think really, it's it's over. Okay. You know, that was super, it's very surprising in that way. I do wonder if it's like, you know, in this binge culture, if that's changed our our viewing habits, our intake of like, because possibly, but this has that quality of binging a story. You just want to know what's going to happen next. It has a momentum to it that uh, other, you know, very worthy pieces of work don't have. So does this, as I said, like, I think of the emotional engagement of a, of a show like this, mm-hmm. of a play like this, and that's not always the case for even great works of art. Is that, is that a, a mark of, of differentiating it from other material you've been in to see, to feel that energy in the audience out there and even probably among your fellow actors? Yeah, because, I mean, the subject matter of this, uh, it really, for people who don't know, you know, this is, um, it's, it's really about the legacy of the AIDS epidemic. And, um, but it extends, you know, which becomes a metaphor for something much larger in, in the human experience. And, um, you, the show, you know, you meet a group of young gay men in, in present day or actually 2016, 2017. And, um, it's about their relationship with, uh, two older middle-aged gay men who were traumatized by the epidemic. And um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's hard to encapsulate in a, you know, in, sure. a, in a couple of sentences, <laughs> but the, um, it delves into what it means to be you know, part of a community that um, was a, a disenfranchised or an oppressed community that went through um, you know, uh, um, a crisis, a trauma like AIDS that was, you know, in, in many ways sort of like, you know, what, what the Holocaust was yeah. for Jews. No, cataclysmic. You know, a cataclysmic yeah. um, uh, existential crisis uh, that they fought through and suffered through. And the present generation, you know, um, are the beneficiaries of the suffering and trauma that yeah. their forebears, you know, fought through. Um, and they're kind of not that connected to it you know they take the gay marriage if not for granted you know the the rights that they have now it's kind of so uh it's sort of a distant memory and so this really holds them to account and forces these men to look at their legacy and you really burrow into you know my character certainly as a, a henry wilcox who if people saw the movie of howard's end because matthew lopez sort of has fashioned this off of Howard Zandi and Forrester's classic novel, which is one of his favorites, sure, um, and was a great Merchant Ivy film uh, uh, with Anthony Hopkins and, and Emma Thompson. I'm sort of Anthony Hopkins in it. Um, Henry Wilcox in our story is a a, a gay Republican billionaire, right, who um, is fabulously wealthy and successful and very powerful, uh, but is a man who um, made a decision to sort of shut himself down emotionally, um, but, uh, you know, in the midst of the epidemic yeah. and cut himself off from human, any deep human contact. And that's sort of put all of his energy into uh, his, his career. And um, yeah. he's really, when we meet him, he's, uh, you know, confronted, he's, you know, there's a major sort of, a reckoning that he's, he faces with the, what that means. Well, it's fascinating to see, yeah, it's just like, our coping mechanisms mm-hmm. and how we each kind of like grapple with, I mean, in this case, what was, as we said, kind of a cataclysmic like effect on mm-hmm. his community, his life. Um, and you know, what might seem to be a black and white character you, by the end, I think you, you have maybe more, you know, if you're not from that political stripe and I'm certainly not, I assume, and I know you're not, right. you feel for this character. And, and the yeah, way Matthew does a brilliant job because Henry is a libertarian Republican 
and uh, in the age of Trump. And um, Matthew, you know, there's a great scene where Henry gives his perspective. He gets in a political debate with some of uh, these younger men. And he makes a very eloquent, yeah. persuasive argument, whether you disagree with it or not. Uh, and there's a, and he also, the other side is, is brilliantly rendered. Right. Or there's this great speech about America has AIDS, which is really good. Uh, but, but that's the mark of good writing. You know, that there's no good guys and bad guys. There's just human beings. Sure. And we're often in conflict with one another and none of us have it all figured out. You know, what's, what's your recollection of, I mean, I, I grew up in the in the city in New York and like I was a kid in the eighties. Mm -hmm. So I have like my own, like I was just a kid. So I didn't quite re reckon, recognize what was happening, but I remember, I remember the crisis and I remember Ed Koch's response mm -hmm. or non-response, yeah. et cetera. Um, were you in New York at that time? I was, I was exactly, I'm a couple of years younger than Henry Wilcox. So I, Henry came to New York in 1981. Tony came to New York in 1982, well, really 1984, because I went to grad school in London. Uh, so I came in at 24 years old, like Henry Wilcox, came to start Make My Way in New York yeah. in the 80s. And um, it was, by the time I got here, it was exploding. And, um, and I was working in the theater, so I knew a lot of people. And, and my wife, Jane, and I lost a lot of friends. Um, however, as a straight man, I can't possibly know what it was. Yeah. There's a line that Eric says, um, in the play, who's the sort of protagonist, he's the Emma Thompson character. Um, you know, when he's talking to, uh, my life partner, uh, about the, he says, I, I can understand what it was, but I can't possibly feel what it was. And there's this very moving scene where Walter, my partner, describes to him what it, what it was like. Right. Um, I feel that way. Every time I hear it, I go, yes, that's how it is. And, I, and uh, so I feel kind of a great responsibility as an actor to, to try and channel what it was like to be um, under assault like that you know, where you were living in fear for your life. And no one, all through the 80s, no one knew, you know, we knew it was a sexually transmitted disease, but no one quite knew how you got it or how, Yes. and the, the degree of panic and paranoia and homophobia, and um, it was, it was incredible. And then suddenly someone would be infected, and then a week later they're dead. And we lost so many people. I mean, and we. Ugh, it's, it's, you, it's, correct me if I'm wrong. You you played a a gay man who was who was dying of AIDS and designing women. I was that did. it? Did yeah, early in the early days. You know, one of my very first jobs, 1987. Uh, there was this sitcom, very successful sitcom on CBS called Designing Women, mm -hmm. and Linda Bloodworth Thomason, who created it, her mother died of AIDS from a blood transfusion. I did not know that. That's crazy. Wow. And she wanted to write about it because no one was talking about it. Ronald Reagan had not mentioned the word AIDS. Right. Infamously. No one. Never. It was just yeah. like everyone was paranoid about it. Yeah. They didn't talk about it. And, you know, so it had never been portrayed on primetime television before. So she wrote an episode of a sitcom, which for those who don't know, Designing Women was this group of funny women <laughs> who had this like in, in Atlanta, I think, or in the south somewhere right. yeah, yeah. and uh w you know they had this designs interior design firm and that was and it was a great show yeah so this story was of a young gay man who was a friend of theirs who was another designer and he'd come down with aids and he came to them saying i want you to design my funeral and i want to do it with you because my family's rejected me and i want to i want to go out the way i want to go out and would you guys design my funeral and they said Okay, and so it was a sort of expose of AIDS, and, and it ends with this guy's funeral, <laughs> and in a half-hour sitcom. Amazing. And <laughs> I did, and it was kind of a great part, you know, especially for me. I was just, you know, it was one of my first jobs on, on front of a camera, and, and it ended up being quite a, quite a big deal. I found out years later, I mean, still to this day, People in the gay community of a certain age come up to me and they say, "You have no idea what that meant to our community right. because no one Just was talking. To see it there. No one yeah. was talking about it in that context. Yeah. And for you, to see you do it as a as a young straight man to do it, and, yeah. and um, 
The other thing that's insane or seems insane now is that, and uh, a few years later I did a play in New York that was very popular. I played a gay character. It was a beautiful play called The Sum of Us, which we did uh, first at Williamstown and then at the Cherry Lane Theater, and it was a big hit. And it was about a, um, a relationship between, a, it was an Australian play about the relationship between a, a young man and his father. And the father was fully accepting of his sexuality in a very kind of macho Australian society. And... Um, they were these two men who lived together because the mother was dead and neither of them could find love in their life because their lovers couldn't accept that the other was so accepting. So I had boys come and they freaked out that my dad was okay with it and women that he was trying to connect with couldn't deal with the fact that he was accepting he had a gay son and we were both alone together and it's a beautiful play but it was, um, you know, it was very powerful to the community at that time when it was under assault. And so, so I guess this is, I was very, um, you've had these on the periphery markers markers where I was trying to find a point of connection. And, and yet at the same time, there were people going, are you crazy? You're playing a gay character on, don't you see that'll be his career suicide. And I was like, what? But that was the mentality, you know, people warning me, I shouldn't be playing a gay character because it would negatively impact my career as a, and, I just was like, well, if I'm, if that's how I'm making decisions, I have no right, right. pretending to call myself an artist. You know, it, it, it's probably fair to say that theater's always been there for you in the ups and downs of yep. of your career. For and sure. Like, and and you know, as a fan of your work, and and frankly, like I think a lot of people first they think of you, they think of you for certain key film roles, and mm-hmm. I and I think of you because I'm a cinephile. Like I know you've directed some really great pieces of work. Um, including your, your debut film, which is fantastic, A Walk on the Moon, um, and then recent your scandal. But like, you know, there are ups and downs like there are for any sure. actor. Mm-hmm. And then you dig in and you really see that like theater was there at the start and theater was there in kind of the, the rough patches and mm-hmm. theater's now here in this kind of new stage post-scandal and you've, you're yeah. finding like these like, I mean, fair to say you've probably found probably the most significant, important parts in your career in the theater, yes? Yeah, I think that's it. Generally speaking? Say, yeah. Um, Does it mean different things to you now? Like, has it, has it felt like kind of the, the respite for you throughout your career? It's always felt like home to me in a way. Yeah. And a creative home and also um, somewhere you always can come back and really sink your teeth into material uh, and push yourself. Working in the theater uses you in a kind of fuller way, I, I find, as an actor mm. than working in film. And I, I say that with incredible respect and humility for film and television acting because it is not easy. But it's, um, there's a, you know, there's certain technical skills you must have to work in the theater. To, right, you can't you know, hide in the theater. You there's can't no, like... hide, you can't, <laughs> you know, you have to have a certain, um, it makes demands of your voice and your body Yes. Because you're projecting a story to a thousand people or sometimes in a smaller theater or less. But and yet the work that you're doing has to be fully emotionally connected and real and authentic. And yet it has to have a kind of uh, elevated energy to it. Um, It's sort of a much more athletic uh, art form. Sure. uh, Than than acting in front of the camera. So I find that really challenging um, and, and in a great way. And the material just tends to be more literary and more complex. So that's always been a touchstone to come back if I've... Because sometimes, you know, let's be honest, I've done a number of movies or television to, you know, keep my career going and, and support my family. Sure. Where I did came away going, well, that was pretty shallow, but, uh, you know, it paid the bills and, and or was commercially viable, and that's yeah. great. But... One doesn't come away always feeling uh, creatively, you know, uh, inspired and energized. So, from going back to the beginning, I mean, you, you know, you were born with a name that mm-hmm. means a lot for those that that know. You know, I mean, it's like the Barrymores or Warner. Like this is like Goldwyn yeah. is a, is is intrinsic with the birth of this industry of That's Hollywood, right. especially mm-hmm. uh, your grandfather, your dad. Like many in your family have worked in the business. Um, did you have a sense of that? growing up did you have a sense of i don't know responsibility to follow in in the footsteps in some way um uh no initially i mean i had a very strong sense of um the legacy and and how uh significant it was Mm. and both of my grandfathers were 
my my paternal grandfather Samuel Goldwyn was one of the founders of the industry right. of movies, and um, my mother's father Sidney Howard was a great and very successful playwright and screenwriter uh, in the 20s and 30s. He died young, but um, right the same year he won the Oscar for writing Gone with the Wind. Um, <laughs> so in my mother's whole family was in the theater, and her mother was a Broadway actress who actually died young. But So th- it was in my, you know, I was very aware of it. I, initially, I wanted nothing to do with it. And uh, my parents were, thank God, uh, obsessed with us not being Hollywood brats. So we were sort of kept away from the business. Uh, like, did you spend time on sets? Did you never, go to the Oscars? Never, did I never, you, never, like, never, that we would never have been allowed. I never went to huh. a Hollywood party. I never met a movie star. Wow, that's um, until actually Until I was to me. 16 years old. I mean, the first movie star I ever met was Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> uh, who was a friend of my grandparents. And um, I, you know, she, I, I was when my, Little, my youngest sister was born and she came over to say hello and my grandmother was, it was the year she died, she was not well and so, she, you know, I was like, oh my God, it's Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> um, but no, our parents really kept us away from that. I knew some, act, the actors I knew were theater actors who were my mother's right. and father's great friends. So if there was a close friendship, then there, but I don't know, they, I really am grateful to them. You know, that was my father's business. Yeah. And I, sometimes I would go to work with him. He worked on the studio that my, my grandfather, at the time, you know, had a, his own studio, the Samuel Goldwyn Studios, <laughs> yeah. which is now a, is one of the smaller studio lots in Hollywood. It's cool. But I would go to work with my dad sometimes, but just, and I remember running around the back lot and, but n- n- just as a kid, I wasn't like I went to movie sets. I never went to his film, one of his film sets. And, um, it probably accounts for your healthy relationship I think so. with the industry. I think that's frankly. right. And then, and then when I decided, you know, I got hooked on acting in high school, that then it became a, uh, like a burden that I had to handle. Um, cause then when I decided to go into it and try and do it, it was like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, did how do feel, I handle this did one? Did it feel like your name was part of the conversation when you would go up for roles? Yeah, or? it felt like a weight, you know, yeah. and I, and my father to his credit said, look, you want, you need to do what you need to, you do what you, if you're passionate about something, you go do it, but you're on your own. Like you, you, there, you gotta, you gotta figure this out for yourself. Right. Um, and I think I'll, it's there's nothing you can really do for a kid who wants to be an actor. They've got to be able to either do it or not. So um, I'm grateful that he never got too into my business. But um, but people sort of, in New York, not so much. I've seen the theater, it, people didn't automatically say Goldwyn, you know, but in Hollywood, absolutely, everywhere I went. It's like, oh, I know your dad. Or my brother, my older brother's a very sick, my gen, John, who I mentioned right. earlier, is a very, he was at a very young age, an extremely successful studio executive. So. Um, you know, I went out when I first started going out to LA, it was, yeah, it was a challenge. It was, it was hard, but I realized it was my hang up to get over, you know, cause it ultimately doesn't sure. matter what people think about you. Um, and we all have to prove ourselves in, yeah. in ways. And look, I was lucky enough to have some sort of lens into the industry. And, um, and as soon as I kind of made my bones and found my own feet, uh, it suddenly became a, a really, I feel very privileged to be a part of the legacy that I'm part of. And, and you, your mom basically retired from acting by the time you, the kids came around? By, by the time I came around, yeah. yeah. She she w- worked in this, in the, you know, when she was a young woman in New York, yeah. um, at, she was in the actor's studio and worked with Ilya Kazan and, you know, had a good career as a young actress. And I then she was in one of the classic Twilight Zone episodes. She I have the Beholder was, classic. That's right. She was. And then she got to LA where my dad you know, really wanted to live in LA. So they moved uh, back to LA and he, uh, cause she'd grown up in New York and yeah, she did a bunch of Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and Perry Mason, a lot of these fif- TV oh, shows in the fifties. The did she get a kick out of your... She did because she stopped and she was also a painter, my mother. So mm. she uh, quit acting. I think she didn't ever like working in front of a camera. I think she was sort of uncomfortable and didn't like the business out there and, yeah. and um, was of a generation where my dad really wanted her to be his wife uh, in that old fashioned sense. And so she became a painter. But when I started acting, she was lived very vicariously through me. She really, it was, it was great for her. She loved it. Yeah. Sadly, she died. Um, you know, just as my career was taken off and, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was nice to share with her. The, um, in your twenties, so like it's, it's not till your late twenties that kind of like one of the defining moments in your career, at least for those that watch TV and film happened, which is ghosts, yeah. of course. Right. Yeah. I was 29 when I did that. So like, 
were your twenties a happy time? Was it a time of struggle? Was it a time of like, wait, where's my opportunity? Like, wait, give both, me a sense. Both. It was exciting. Yeah. Um, but it felt really hard, <laughs> you know, cause, um, the, f- the early, you know, like year or two were thrilling, but terrifying. I mean, I came to New York and, um, you know, I, I had the, the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is a great summer theater. You know, I, that's where I got my equity card. So I'd spent summers there when I was a kid, kind of earning my, as a, in college and in grad school, you know, earning my stripes to get my union card. And then I came to New York and had sort of a community of actors from there that we put together a show in a guy's apartment loft in a part of Soho that is now fancy, was not fancy then. And like did a show, that's how I got an agent you know, it's like, and it was romantic and fun. Sure. And then auditioning for Broadway plays. I mean, I'm going to Broadway theater and auditioning for Mike Nichols, you know, and getting a job as an understudy. And then, and getting my, you know, my first year, getting a job off Broadway at a theater I'd always dreamed of. You know, I was living the dream, but also mainly being rejected and mainly, you know, things not working out. And you realize, well, wait, I'm, I'm only getting my first like big job off Broadway and thinking, okay, yeah, here we go. Here we go. And then all of a sudden <laughs> two months later, I'm out of a job. I'm like, wait, is that how this goes? So, um, do you ever learn that lesson by the way, as an actor? Like I'm sure that happens r- routinely through a career. You get a job and you're like, Oh, we're, we're clicking in now. Yeah, You do learn that you, you do, do that. You must, <laughs> you have to, or that you won't survive. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, uh, um, but so, so it was, you know, periods of real excitement and appreciation of the living the dream punctuated by months of, am I ever going to work again? And why can't I get a real break? And after a few years, I'd been, when I look back, I was working a lot. It didn't feel like it, you know? So you feel like you can't get any traction. In those days, there was a real demarcation between film and television. Right. So, you know, I worked in, I was getting good traction in New York. I did a number of plays and stuff like that. And then I thought, I realized I need to be in film and TV if I'm going to even work successfully in the theater, it'll be much easier if I have visibility because I was losing parts to people who were more established than me. So I started going out to LA and, and got jobs uh, as guest starring in TV shows. Right. But because of that, could not get considered for movies. What Was Ghost on Paper a obvious win? Because my recollection, again, I, I was like a teenager then. I remember, I mean, it was Jerry Zucker mm-hmm. who was known for those that don't Naked know. Gun Naked Gun Airplane, which, yeah. I mean, God love him, but yeah. he had never done anything like right. this. Uh, Patrick had done, was a successful actor, but wasn't like money in the bank right. always. To me, was probably on the rise. Like, I don't know, when you landed that, was it clearly like a huge opportunity? For me, it was giant. But what you say is true. Here's what, what it was. I remember my wife, Jane Muskie, who was a great production designer, was the production designer of the film. Jane's career was blowing up at a time when mine, I was still sucking wind. <laughs> um, so J- Jane got hired to do this movie, and I read the script, uh, and I thought, wow, Bruce Joel Rubin wrote a great script. And I remembered reading the script and thinking, wow, this movie delivers on a lot of levels. Like, this is really fun. It's very commercial, like popcorn, mainstream but it's really funny yet it's emotional and this could be really good if it's done well. Patrick's career, um, you know, he had this massive success in Dirty Dancing, but that had been like five years before and he'd been in a couple of tankers, uh, if that's the word, clinkers or something, you know, failures, (laughs) movies that had tanked after that. So he was not at the apex of his career. Demi, people all thought, you know, highly of her, but she hadn't had a big break, which she'd been in St. Elmo's Fire but, you know, bizarrely, all those other people had already become, you know, hotter than her, even though I think she was the best of the bunch. And um, uh, she was, you know, chomping at the bit for a big break. Uh, Whoopi had won an Oscar for The Color Purple. Or been nominated. Or been nominated, I'm sorry. Had been nominated for, yeah, for The yeah. Color Purple. She won for Ghost. But had, you know, been in a number of box office, right. not so successful films, even though she was a big name. It was so. It was a weird grouping, and I think, you know, no one knew. And Jerry was untested; he'd never directed a drama. And I, you know, in a way, I benefited from that because I think bigger names weren't didn't want to necessarily sign up for to play the villain, right? In that, because I would never have gotten that part. And um, Jane, my wife, kept coming home and going, you need to push your agents. They still haven't cast that role. And I was like, they're never going to cast me. Why would they? I can't even get auditions for movies. 
So I, because of Jane, I kept badgering my agents to get me an audition. And finally the assistant was like, you know what? I'm going to get you in on that. Because my agent just was like, no, they won't see you. And I went in and went on tape and then nothing happened. And a few months later I was uh, in New York rehearsing a play to go to Williamstown. And um, uh, in fact, I think it was The Some of Us, the play I mentioned to yeah. you at the beginning of our talk. And uh, I got this call from my agent saying, guess what? They saw your tape and they really like you and they want to bring you in for a screen test. And I ended up miraculously, because they couldn't cast it, and then they went back through all the auditions that they'd seen, and they're like, who's that guy? He was really good. And, um, and someone said, you know, that's Jane's husband. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, yeah, it was, it was a miracle that I got cast, but no one knew. And even when we were making it, I just kept feeling like, this feels good, like yeah. this is good. But you never know. And there wasn't much awareness about the movie, people, but then it just no, it was like resonated. I remember it just like kept going. Resonated with audiences. Right. Resonated with audiences. Somehow, here's an example. No one knew it. I'd mentioned, oh, I did this movie, Ghost. And they're like, Ghost Dad? Because there was a Bill Cosby <laughs> Bill movie Cosby. the same summer <laughs> that was everyone knew about because it was Bill Cosby. And they did a sneak preview like a few weeks before the movie opened. Days of Thunder was opening the same summer. And so Paramount piggybacked Ghost on Days of Thunder for a double feature sneak preview to try and get people to see Ghost because right. no one was aware of it. Well, Days of Thunder apparently was about half full and Ghost was after Days of Thunder and Ghost was packed. No idea why. People just smelled it. Yeah. And they, they were like, you can't believe it. Like it, was, it was a midnight show or something and it was full, full and we couldn't get everyone to come to Days of Thunder which was a big Tom Cruise movie. And... Um, I don't know, audiences, it was just, it's a weird thing with audiences, they it just was, smelled it. And overnight, yeah. like, and it got okay reviews, it wasn't getting, you know, there were some snarky reviews about it, but um, overnight it just was like a smash hit. It was, it was a crazy thing to be a part of. Um, I always remember the, uh, like, the early scene of you and Patrick in the elevator. Do people ever do the gag where, like, they're uh, pretending to be sick, coughing in an elevator? With you? Not with me, no. That's not, maybe that's happened years, years ago, but no, not, not recently. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. So Hopefully you, not with the coronavirus. Oh, God, yeah, now it's too real. <laughs> like, wait a second. Yeah. So the, I mean, yeah, we don't, obviously don't have time to hit everything, but you've, you've worked with, I mean, you mentioned Nichols, and I, you've, I've heard you mention him a few times. Did you ever, like, work directly with him? Like, No, I didn't. I met him because he hired me to be an under, one of my first jobs was understudying yeah. in the real thing at the end of its Broadway run when I first came to New York. Um and then, I, and he was always just so nice to me. He was one of the kindest men. I'm trying to think that I have any other... But no, he was just always so kind. And anytime I would see him, he would compliment, you know, my work, or I saw this thing, or when I directed A Walk on the Moon, he called me and he said, you're a wonderful director. And I was like, well, wow. you're my hero. And, yeah. and um, God, even to his last year of life, I, um, my partner Richard Lagravenez and I created this series for AMC and it ended up being on Wii TV, but it was called The Divide, which I mean, we were very proud of it. And... Um, we invited Mike and Diane Sawyer to um, our premiere. Just because you invite people you would like to immediately get an email back going, yes, we'll be there. I was like, really? That's amazing. <laughs> they will come. Then I get a message from Mike's office the day of the premiere going, Mike and Diane, Mike wanted to reach out to you because they're not going to be able to come to the party. They're definitely coming to the screening, but he just wanted you to know if you didn't see him at the party that he was there. And I was like, who does that? <laughs> then... At the, on our way to the party, I get this email from Mike and Diane. It was really Mike. Hi, it's Mike and Diane. This like long email. We just wanted you to know how much we love it. Richard's such a brilliant writer and what you did and all these. And we just wanted, didn't get to see you, but wanted you to know how much this meant to us. And we're so proud of you. And that was Mike Nichols. I mean, who does that? He's and one of he's those. not even. I didn't even get to work with him. He just was. And everybody says that about exactly. him. Exactly. I was he, gonna say. I, I've had many. Like, like he's one of those directors that just pops up and was yeah. like whether the kind of stories you tell or as a direct mentor, just like was always there. And I'm like transcendent theater. And film. yeah, it's he one of my anything. great regrets just... that I never got to work with him. And he he um because he also was my directing god. Yeah. I have a few, but he's one of them. Because he. He was kind of like a Billy Wilder. He kind of do like everything. Yeah, and he always was about. Oh God, he he's just a great storyteller. Great storyteller visually. He did things that had great style, but it was never about the style. 
um, the way he, the performances, he all, the nuance of performances, and I just there's yeah his movies are all so, always so economical, and his the, you know theater too. Anyway, I, I just I go on I, about Mike Nichols. I, I've heard you mention, and I know your part was relatively small, but I'm always fascinated because he's also one of those filmmakers that had a profound influence on me as a kid. Is Oliver Stone? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, Oliver's. He's a fascinating character. Because he is. I, I mean, I, I I I mean, I've done stuff with him. I know what he's like, and I know what he's like with actors and mm-hmm. how his his default is provocation. Like that's, I think how he gets off is like that. Mm-hmm. He likes to poke at people yep. and that's where he, the creative exchange happens. Yeah. And that can be both, uh, well, I found it thrilling this was on, the, Nixon, on Nixon, yeah. which I was basically in for a week, but I, it was the most exciting experience I've had with a film director. He was g- great and he could be really mean. Um, and as you say, provoking, <laughs> he, uh, but he was very inspired, and he liked actors that kind of bring ideas and bring a point of view, which is what he demands from you. Right. So people that don't or that are on their heels at all or a little intimidated, yep. he can be awful too because he will really go after them. And I maybe incensed that, so I like brought... My, you matched I, that energy. I brought that yeah. energy, yeah, and yeah. if he didn't like it, he's like, that's really shitty what you're doing. Why is it so bad? <laughs> you're like, um, I don't know. Maybe I'll make it better. He's like, yeah, do that. Um, but then when he... He kind of liked that. It's funny because like he was sort of perverse in the way that he would provoke you. But I, I I was, I think he's one of the greats. Because I I feel like generally speaking, right in this industry, it's like tiptoeing around like the art, like like making sure everyone's okay. That everyone's okay. Yeah, that's not no. (laughs) I'm like that. I'm I'm you know I I take care of people. But he he's always very unusual. Like you said, he's a provocateur. Yeah. Um, And sometimes it's I would imagine not helpful. But I found it. uh, I think he's just brilliant. The again, we don't have the time to really dive into everything deeply, but I do want to mention like you've had a great directing career too. I mean, like I said, A Walk on the Moon was your debut, which is an amazing yeah, way to start thanks. as a feature director. All the way up to like I enjoyed Conviction. I remember covering it. Mm-hmm. I was at the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, really? Yeah, right. yeah. And you haven't directed a feature since, since I know because I did Scandal. So right, right after Conviction, and and um, it's I want to now. You know, so I've directed a lot of television, but until right. last year, or whatever two years when we finished. Um, they didn't have time. Did, I guess on the walk in the moon front, like, because it, it came at a very interesting point for you. I mean, you were pretty young to kind of like transition. Like you were still like, had a, like a, like a, a very boisterous, exciting, like career as an actor. Like you, for instance, you're like directing Vigo who ostensibly you could have been up for that part. Like you were the same age, essentially. Was that odd yeah. for you to kind of like shift? No, it was great. Yeah. I could not, I knew I, what happened to me was I did Ghost, which, like we said, blew up. And then I did one or two things that did not work, and suddenly I realized, like, I was hot when I did Ghost. I'd never <laughs> experienced that before. Like, everyone who'd been slamming doors in my yeah, face all the cliches are true. It's kissing suddenly, my ass. Yeah, yep. I mean, literally, people that would turn away from me at a dinner table because they, like I had leprosy, God. were throwing themselves at me, telling me how they always knew I was going to be a big star. Oh, no. And, um... <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then, you know, a year or two after Ghost, when movies weren't successful, suddenly I was struggling again, not in the same way. I was still, and I was working. And, but your expectations like, also I were felt, higher. Like, wait, I should yes, be on this level exactly. Now. Like, yeah. why aren't I getting up there? Yeah. And, and, and do I have a shot at that? And, and I felt out of control of my career. And I was like, you know what? In 10 years, I don't want to have my life be like this. Even if I have, because I knew you can have great success and be on the A-list, and then all of a sudden you're not yeah. anymore. And um, I said, I, I need, so I, that's when I got into producing and I found that script. And, um, and then because I didn't want to give somebody else to screw up, I ended up starting to direct it myself. I was so thrilled by the experience and I knew people were saying, well, do you want to play the blouse man? And I knew I wasn't right for the part. I de- Vigo was the guy and I wanted to direct it. I didn't want to have that burden. Um, I needed a very specific person for that role and I don't have that kind of sexuality not I guess I have my own but Vigo has this mysterious I don't know I think he's a genius <laughs> he and really he is, yeah. there was literally I can tell you there was no other actor on the planet if we had not gotten Vigo the movie would not have worked I tried everybody even if even like Brad Pitt was not the right guy yeah. you know it was not of if I'd gotten him I wouldn't there's something about it was the linchpin of the film even though he He's not, you know, it's about Diane and she's brilliant in the film. I don't know. So, no, I was very happy and thrilled. And frankly, you know, while my career was busy as an actor, um, I was 
you know, I hadn't hit the A-list. Sure. And so people were like, oh yeah, the guy from Ghost. And when I directed Walk on the Moon, people were like, wait, who's Tony Goldwyn? What? What, you did that? So it, re it actually reinvented my acting career as well. It was an interesting thing about perception in Hollywood. You know, people want to put you in the, little, the box totally. that they have you in. Yeah. So I've always tried to remain a moving target. Successful. <laughs> so like, You've done that very well. You know, you think I'm that? Okay, I'm going to go do this. Yeah. So same thing. I do it because I love doing it. But, you know, I did Scandal. That's great. I'm going to go back to Broadway. I'm going to do Network. You know what I mean? And so that, and that was like, oh, cool. As opposed to, what's my next series? You know, now right. I have the heat off Scandal. I need to do another series. Well, yeah, but I... You don't find that scandals that often. So. Well, I was going to say, Scandal couldn't have worked out more perfectly. Any hesitation you might have had, it was your first series. Yeah. Um, like, it just, it, it seems like, and it also seems like, just judging from you on social, like, that you guys, like, really formed, like, a, a true bond in this it was cast. Amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, we're still very close friends. Was it odd, <laughs> on a superficial level, of becoming this, like, kind of crazy sex symbol in your 50s? It was hilarious. It was a perfect... Uh, illustration of the fact that we think we can control our life and we just can't. Right. This is all the stuff that like we were just talking about like yeah. in your 20s and 30s you're like this is it. It's all going to happen. It's supposed to yeah, it's supposed to be this way. Yeah. I'm supposed to my 30s and if I don't become a movie star by the time I'm 35 then it's over and literally my dad, I love my dad and I, you know, God, you know, he's he's no longer with us and he was in a tremendous um you know, mentor to me in so many ways, but <laughs> he had his perception on the, when I was going to be an actor, I remember him saying to me in 1978, when I was, you know, out of high school and wanting to be an actor and, and I was applying to a summer theater program in San Francisco and, and he, it was when he knew I was serious about doing it and he was like, Ugh. and he said, you know, here's the reality of the business. If you're not John Travolta by the time you're 25, it's kind of over. There's no career. <laughs> And at that time, John Travolta on the heels of Saturday Night Fever was the biggest star in the world. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, Travolta or busts? What? Something, <laughs> I, you know, and he was a, you know, on his end, he sort of, that was his anxiety talking. But there's a part of you that always feels that way, you know, and I knew that couldn't quite be right. But you do think there are all these rules. So for me, I didn't become an A-list movie star in my 30s. So I became a movie director. Yeah. And then that opened up the whole universe for me. And then in my, at 50, I end up being like sort of the sex symbol on this hit television series in, in, a, in a very, while mainstream, really interesting and kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways um, show. It just made me, you know, now suddenly I'm on like the list of people's sexiest men alive or whatever it was. And I just thought, well, you know, keep a smile on your face and just do what you do because... Anyway, I could never have made that happen. You and know also I mean? seemed seemingly like dovetailed perfectly <clears throat> with interests in your own life. I mean, you didn't become an activist with scandal. Like these were things that were intrinsically, it seems like a part of you. Yeah, but it gave me a platform. Exactly. Yeah, I'd always been interested in, you know, tried to do what I could and use whatever celebrity platform I had for social advocacy um, and some politics. I'd never deeply gotten into politics until 2016. But um, uh, yeah, when you're on a hit show like that you have a tremendous platform and if you use it intelligently you can have a tremendous impact and especially now in, in the age of social media yeah so before we go i do want to mention uh in addition to the inheritance i really loved network it was such an unusual production i mean i obviously love the the classic film yeah. written by patty chayefsky but like uh what the director evo van hove yeah who i've seen a few of his productions and they're always very unique mm -hmm. um what was that experience like? Because I mean, like I remember, you know, I had Tatiana in here, and there's some unusual stuff that you go through in that, even the way it was done. But like you're doing live stuff on the street, which I didn't realize was literally done. Yeah, live. it was like, crazy. I, I had been sort of chasing it a little bit. Oddly, I had in a completely uh, disconnected way two years before. Uh, Jason Reitman, the film director, has a series at the LA County Museum of Art where he does readings great. of great screenplays, yes, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I got a call saying, do you want to read the screenplay of Network for an audience? And I was like, hell yeah. yeah. So I did it and I read Max Schumacher, the role I ended up playing. And Aaron Sorkin read Howard Beale. Oh, that's amazing. That Brian Cranston sure, did. Sure. And we read this. And it was so fun to read with Aaron. Very quickly, of, probably. It was a 20-minute production because Aaron talks so fast. He does. But it, <laughs> and Aaron's sort of um, in the legacy of Petty Chayefsky in a lot of ways, his writing. you know, And, yeah, and, and totally, Patty yeah. was a hero of his. And he sort of is that sort of political commentary, mm -hmm. he writes in that way. Anyway, so that was super cool, and I ended up finishing this thing going, this is a piece of theater. This, who is this? Why has this never been done on stage? So I called um, my agents, and I was like, 
who controls the rights to network? Because this needs to be done on Broadway. This is a piece of theater. And like, well, you're too late. Eva Van Hove is doing it at the National Theater in London. I was like, oh, damn, because I thought I, I could get the option, the rights. And, yeah. and I thought, well, that's kind of perfect. And then I heard that Brian was doing it. And I said, well, if it ever comes to Broadway, let's keep an eye on it. And then I got this email out of the blue from Brian Cranston last summer or the summer before last. Right saying, we're doing this and we're bringing it to Broadway and we'd love for you to be Max Schumacher. Would you consider it? And, and I said, I'm not available, but yes, because I was doing a TV series for Netflix and, and they were awesome and gave me a, let me out a month early to do the show and I ended up doing it. Wow. These, uh... But it was very thrilling. And Evo's the, yeah, we did it. Tatiana and I did a scene. There was lots of cameras in the thing for people who don't know. And we did a film live on the street and then entered the stage and the audience is watching on a projection and then we walk on stage and have sex. I was going to say, not to mention having basically a sex scene right in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to know that like in this uh, career that's had like, like anyone's career that's been around long enough, like these ups and downs, like there are these moments of serendipity that have happened, especially it sounds like in the theater inheritance uh, network where, um, yeah, whether you're secreting something into you, in the universe or what, they come around in this but great in profound way. But in movies television too, if you think of how a walk on the moon happened, or even Ghost with the serendipity of Jane being involved or sure. Scandal, you know? And I was like, maybe I should consider television. I, honestly, here's the truth in terms of ups and downs. I'd worked for eight years to get my last film, Conviction, made. It had many lives and kept collapsing. We finally got it made with Hilary Swank and Sam Rockwell. We made the film and there was all this like people telling me, oh, this is the one, this is gonna be huge, yeah. you know? And we're, and then it didn't do business, you know, and we, Fox Searchlight really worked hard and we just didn't, I, whatever, who knows? Yeah. It didn't, and, and I was experienced enough at the time to feel like, you know what, I made the movie I wanted to make. If it's, whatever it's failings or successes are, it is what it is. I was lucky enough to make the thing I wanted to make. And um, all the noise about, okay, this is going to be the one that launches you. And, the, and I just thought, so I did a musical on Broadway after that. And then I thought, wow, after doing a year on Broadway, I need to make some money because I'd made conviction for, you know, that was a long effort for a very little pay. And um, I thought I should, television's really changing. I'd always said no to series, but I said I should open my thinking up to it. And then Shonda calls. Literally, it was two months later. I guess, I'm doing this new show. You know, you wanted, you'd be really great for the president. And I was like, <laughs> well, well, let me think about it. And I, I remember talking to my manager I read the script and I was like, well, it's kind of great. And I love Carrie Washington. And I was going to work with her and Shonda. I said, but I'm not sure. It's like a network series is it? He said, shut up. You are doing this. <laughs> He's like, whatever you're thinking, just shut up and say yes. Because this is the kind of thing that could really be, could really work. And I'm eternally grateful to him. I was yeah, like, you need okay, like I that guess that's why life. I yeah. hire you. Because <laughs> exactly. you know, I, I was sort of thinking the pros and cons. He was like, no, nope. just say yes. Short conversation. Yep. <laughs> and he was right. He sort of smelled something that, uh, and it ended up being much much a much richer experience than I ever could have uh, yeah. imagined. Well, I hope you continue to get to do a little bit of everything because I, I, I so enjoy watching you on stage, but I also enjoy you directing. I hope you get to direct another feature yes. soon. Yeah, I hope um, so congratulations again for those uh, that haven't had an opportunity to see The Inheritance, and it's 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 a it's a really monumental piece of work. You should really uh, do your best to get tickets if you're uh, get a chance to be in New York. Uh, you're going to be on for a few months at I'm, least uh, till April nineteenth. Excellent. Yeah. All mm -hmm. right. Uh, again, check out The Inheritance and Tony. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you. Yeah. Today. Thanks, man. Likewise. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>